Hello and welcome to Unframed, conversations about the arts on CFCR 90.5 FM in Saskatoon and streaming live around the world at cfcr.ca. I'm your host, Michael Peterson, and with me today is Troy Gronstall, an associate curator with Aramey and who helped to organize last week's Super Community Live, The Climatic Unconscious, a series of lectures, presentations, and video screenings that took place at the Roxy Theatre Friday night and most of the day Saturday. Super Community Live grew out of the Super Community Project, which EFLEX Journal organized for the Venice Biennale, asking 88 artists and thinkers to each write a paper loosely based around the theme of climate, but as Troy and I talk about branching out from that to other contemporary issues. These papers were then distributed one a day, five days a week, for close to four months. There were 88 papers in total, and these papers start to create a dialogue as the super community. These papers are stored on EFLEX's website, and Super Community Live then was a project to bring some of the important contributors to Saskatoon to discuss further some of the topics and themes that they touch on in their papers, as well as to show some of the works that they reference. Thank you for joining me here today, Troy. Thanks for inviting me. So yeah, Super Community, it was, um, it was quite the project. It <laughs> had to be a bit of an undertaking on your end. Yeah, it's um, as you mentioned, there there were uh, 88 pieces of writing produced for the uh, Eflux Journal Super Community Project, creating this sort of live manifestation of it to sort to kind of wrap it up in some ways. I think was uh, a pretty big, daunting kind of challenge for uh, the Eflux editors and and for us at the Ramey too. For sure, and I think you were mentioning that Saskatoon ended up becoming the main host for this wrap-up. Yeah, I think originally they had it sort of planned to do maybe more than one sort of live event so it wouldn't be uh, centered in one specific place, kind of in keeping with the idea of super community, which is this sort of dispersed, uh, nebulous kind of community of artists and writers and philosophers and, you know, this network that kind of spans across borders. And yeah, I think that part of the the idea was that they would kind of wrap it up with live events in, in multiple locations to sort of embrace the spirit of that project. But uh, as it turned out, Saskatoon was sort of the, the key uh, the key site here to, to do a super community live event and sort of give some closure, I guess, to this really big project. This project that focused around this idea of climate, it was subtitled The Climatic Unconscious. Can you give for listeners a bit of an idea of sort of what was what they were getting at there? <laughs> sure. So the Super Community Publishing Project had some key topics that uh, the writers responded to, and they had guest editors from the topics. And I think when they were trying to give some parameters, I guess, around uh, a live event, because it's such a, a vast sort of range of perspectives, as well as uh, topics that were addressed in the Super Community Project, uh, I think using using something like climate change as uh, to set some kind of field or define like a field for uh, the responses to, to sort of fit in. And also because uh, issues of climate change sort of necessarily touch on all kinds of other issues about, you know, political issues, social issues, and environmental issues, they could use that sort of this kind of moment of crisis in terms of the environment as a way to also look at other issues that are implicated in in this sort of mess of uh, global climate change. Well, sure. And there really was a large span of issues. I mean, a number of the talks touched on things like technology or 
the way that power is distributed throughout countries or throughout the world. And going back to efflux as well, this is generally done on a often a fairly heavily theoretical level too. And some of the talks sort of went that way. But mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess for me then, part of the value of you coming here is for us to sort of start to unpack a bit of what was discussed and, and talk about that. For you, what were some of your highlights? Well, um, I really enjoyed uh, the more purely artistic responses to the uh, to the theme. So Anton Vodokles, uh performance and film the communist revolution was caused by the sun i thought was like really compelling and fascinating it sort of like blended i couldn't tell if it was documentary or if it was fiction and he added this layer of his voice where he was introducing in this kind of hypno hypnotic invitation at the beginning and close which i thought was like really effective in terms of kind of engaging a live audience in a in a film and it, he did it in a way that, for me at least, I had to sort of step back and go, is he doing this live? Because it was, mm-hmm. he speaks very well about There wasn't, you know, hesitation. It could mm-hmm. have been recorded. So mm-hmm. it was interesting, yeah. So, yeah, I really uh, appreciated the fact that there were artistic responses included. So, like, we uh, screened quite a few films. And I'm also really glad that uh, Laurie Blondeau and Adrian Stimson were interested in participating and in, in contributing, kind of wrapping it up with a performance we were sort of chatting before and I was sort of saying how art experiences obviously uh, work on a different kind of, they affect you differently than, than responding to lectures and, and more um, things that are more kind of oriented around translating or understanding language and, and they're more of a interpretive kind of pure interpretive kind of uh, way of understanding something. Mm-hmm. And like the, the, really the, the power of an art experience is that it can work on, different registers so it can you know it can work on an emotional level uh, this sort of effective kind of level that we're, we can't really quite understand something that's in more like in feeling or mood and also you know it, it prompts a number of personal responses that are very like individual as opposed to some kind of more purely interpretive exercise of responding to um, a lecture or or a paper so I'm glad we I'm really glad that we were able to to wrap it up with uh, a performance as well as have those video and films kind of peppered throughout it. Well, yeah, and just to speak about Adrienne and Laurie's in particular, it was interesting to end what had been a day and a half of often talks or readings of papers with a performance that had no dialogue and just to go that other side and just, Mm -hmm. you know, and like you say, allow that other ways of um, gaining knowledge to come through. Yeah, I think that was... um and, and kind of try to situate it in this particular place because issues related to climate change obviously have really resonate here in Saskatchewan. You know, we're an extraction economy. Mm-hmm. We're also a colonial settler place. So a lot of the issues that were raised in super community, actually, you know, this is ground zero for a lot of those issues. So I thought it was really important to have that perspective within the conference itself just to... Um, to ground it in some ways in this really uh, uh, urgent kind of local issue as well. Well, and that speaks to part of what I took away from the conference was this idea of bringing Saskatoon into conversation on an international level and bringing some of those conversations here. But like you say, not just hosting them, but joining into and contributing to that conversation in our own way. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I was really proud that we were able to share, you know, two great Saskatoon artists work to kind of this international cast of 
artists and writers and as well as people kind of following along online on the live stream. So I thought that was important. Well, and they're good people to do it. <laughs> well, so then moving from there, one of the other projects that I feel was at least semi-connected to theirs was Elizabeth Pavanelli's video talking about Indigenous rights in Australia. I think we, when we, you and I were talking before, too, you were saying that that was one of the powerful pieces for you, too, or her talk as well. Yeah. Well, I'm kind of, um, uh, I have, a, like, a philosophy bias. I actually, like, enjoy philosophy. Fair enough. Sort of in, like, the podcast kind of way, though, like, in the digestible kind of way. I don't like reading f- philosophical, like, books or, like, you know, but I do enjoy listening to philosophers uh, explain or uh, sort of unravel one of their positions. So before her talk, or before uh, her screening, she talked about some of the work she had done around uh, rethinking some of the ideas between uh, what we traditionally think of as life and non-life. Mm-hmm. And I really thought that was kind of a kind of a interesting way to reposition or kind of reevaluate the sort of hierarchies that we that are implicit in the way that we uh, basically govern the the land or you know the policies around development, for example. So the idea that something that we may, may consider as a non-living entity actually might have some kind of rights, uh, I thought was like quite interesting. And she did it in a way that opened it up beyond sort of uh, something that uh, I sort of think of as more like animism. Mm-hmm. But to, to she used the, um, the analogy of the desert or the virus also as these sort of uh, forms that appear dormant or not living, but under certain circumstances are living or can support life and I thought that once I kind of like got my head around it I thought that was a kind of an interesting approach to to um, thinking about maybe uh, ways within our existing structure that we can give uh, some agency to the non-human world Mm -hmm. or you know reposition the importance of things like the environment or you know non-human life like animals and the plants and Yeah, one of the quotes I pulled from her talk was, she said that it raises two questions, not only whose lives matter, but if only life matters. And this idea of starting to talk about the inanimate as having rights, or as you say, like we can talk about, uh, she talked about the desert as preserving the difference between uh, life and non-life. But one of her points was, I think, around ancestral rights and so like a grave site and are there rights for the non-living you mm-hmm. know and to what extent do we bring those into our, our legal systems or other rights giving bodies it was you know. yeah it was i thought the potential for that was like really fascinating and i actually wanted her to go on <laughs> i wanted yeah. more of that yeah I, th- I thought that was interesting and then the film that she uh produced with the aboriginal australian film collective i thought in some ways brought it home as well in like a real kind of practical way yeah, so I, I I kind of really appreciated that that uh, chunk of the... Well, it was nice to see this narrative come out of it again as you speak about sort of learning through a different means. And just to bring briefly into it, the narrative that she was talking about was one of a contaminated mine site in a, in near an Aboriginal colony in Australia and how that became a space that was left... Uh, contaminated until white people started to move in, in which case it was then cleaned up and the same indigenous communities that had been living near it were then employed to clean it up when the white people moved in. And it was this, I don't know, it was an interesting story. Yeah, just like this bitter irony. It was just, I don't know, it's kind of heart-wrenching as well. Mm-hmm. But absolutely like relevant to Can- Canadian history is, you know, so I thought that was also important to 
have that kind of in the presentation. And I think it reinforces a lot of the time the ways that our histories with our indigenous populations really do mirror each other, you know, mm -hmm. unfortunately in many ways. But yeah, another of the talks, and we were talking about this before again, was Muhammad Salemi. And uh, one of the points that he brought up that relates to Elizabeth is his statement of, is it enough to take components of the system and rearrange them? Or do we want to create a new system? And you were talking about how that sort of relates back to this idea of life and non-life. Yeah, well, when uh, the last time you and I spoke was actually at a at a panel that you had organized that was looking at the environment, right, in, in right. urban places. Yes. And I was thinking about the way that uh, our, our understanding of the environment is obviously oriented around a very human experience. And I was thinking about personhood being you know, possibly extended to uh, non-human life forms as a way to give them rights, basically, to change the terms under which we uh, can maybe exploit non-human life. And I thought that was kind of interesting. And I felt like maybe there was something like that happening in what Elizabeth was putting forward is if you kind of not only destabilize, but actually radically shift, you know, the category of life to broaden it to include, you know, maybe like ancestral rights or former life or non-living uh, matter, uh, what the implications might be like legally. So you're actually, I was thinking you're kind of working within an existing structure, mm -hmm. but it's sort of an end around as opposed to building an entirely new structure. And that is actually something I wanted to hear her speak about as well, because I'm kind of, uh, I can't reconcile that actually. I can't, I can't decide if is it which approach is better. It's probably a more pragmatic approach to work within an existing structure and uh, try to find uh, legal loopholes to like sort of champion the rights of non-human life. But um, it was it got me thinking about that, and I, I'm a little bit uh, unresolved in terms of which approach might be the best. It's interesting though too, though, because it's sort of saying can a system that is built on one paradigm of humans as at the top of importance can that ever adequately look at like do we even understand what animal rights mean at that point if we're mm -hmm. working from a human perspective and then to tie it back into that indigenous perspective it's sort of like this idea of can like a european settler legal system ever really accommodate an indigenous perspective when we're talking about indigenization i think a lot of that discussion comes back to that what well, we need to recreate the system not just right I was thinking about that as well in terms of indigenizing the institution, which is kind of uh, at the forefront of a lot of thinking at, at universities and yeah, institutions like museums, mm -hmm. and it and that we should invite somebody to talk about that in another show. I think that because be I think yeah. that's also interesting. It's like uh, it might come down to strategies and tactics. You know, it's sort of like well, which one of these approaches will get the results that we need most urgently uh, sooner than later, mm -hmm. but. I wonder about that myself. It's sort of like, is it enough to uh, to infect an already toxic, you know, site, <laughs> or you know, like, what's it mean to be in a in a in you know a, an inheritor of a toxic site? You know, I don't know. That sort of di dichotomy between the two is interesting. Darren Fleet, who was at another talk that I'd organized that you were part of, but I remember him talking about because he had been at Adbusters and for years had been sort of promoting like a radical let's overthrow the system kind of response and he started to talk about how he would go home for family dinners and realize just how out there what they were proposing was and he sort of shifted to more 
of a evolutionary, and that might be the wrong word for it, but a, let's bring about step change within an existing system because it is achievable in the short term, like he's saying. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of it's like tactical. But is there sort of need to be both, right? Like, mm-hmm. yeah, that's great. Let's overthrow the system. But in the short term, what can we do? I don't know. So do you want to overthrow the system? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a different show. That is a different show. <laughs> I, what I think is interesting, though, is the opportunity for art to start to talk about or to think through what that new system might be. Because as you say, it's a very hard thing to think through. And so I think there's some of that potential, like through Elizabeth's movie, to talk about what it is. But it would be interesting to see that push further and start to, like you say, speculate, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that's another thing that art is really great at is just like presenting alternative ways of being. So um, they don't have to be necessarily uh, models for alternatives, but just to, and this is going to sound, I hope this doesn't sound like a cop out, but just to know that there are other ways of being, I think Mm -hmm. is like kind of heartening at some level that, you know, you can imagine another way of being. It might not be like, uh, might not be like the definitive kind of answer to a problem or set of problems but it's just uh, for me it's heartening to know that there are other ways of being and other ways of thinking about sort of being in the world and being together and I think art can accomplish that no it has that potential and yeah to talk a bit about just one more on that sort of indigenous perspective another artist that you brought in for this was Raymond Boisjoli he gave a really interesting talk about the ways in which the art world is starting to look at the material practices of indigenous cultures. I, I wrote down a couple quotes from his because I thought it was really interesting. He, he said, how do we let something have its death? And he talked about totem poles that during a certain period in Canadian history were cut down and put in museums where they'd be preserved and about how that was never the intention when they were created, that they were meant to decay and through that decay to then re-energize the soil and lead to new life. And he also had this notion of how the material practices of indigenous people their afterlife is art. You know, sort of once they've passed through cultural usefulness, then they become seen as art. And it was just, I don't know, it was interesting to me to unsettle that power structure where we sort of say, hey, that's art. That's what we're looking at in museums where he's saying the value to him was when it was being mm-hmm. used. I don't know. but Yeah. I thought that was, uh, I thought he had a really great talk. He also talked about having a provisional relationship with the present, which I thought was like, you know, I wrote it down on my phone. I'm like, oh, I love that. <laughs> and he, he mentioned something else that I, he talked about the improbability of being in Saskatoon, like of all this coming together and just sort of marveling at that. I thought that was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think, I think the problems around like museums and anthropological kind of collections or ethnographic collections is pretty well established. Right. So I, it's good, it's good to hear that again, because, you know, we, I think uh, Northwest Coast kind of cultural expressive forms in particular have been co-opted by sort of this Canadian tourist, Canadian identity, kind of like they've been kind of hijacked (laughs) for, you know, for this imaginary or symbolic kind of idea of Canada Mm. where they're divorced from whatever their original social context, political context were. So it's good to like remind us of that. And I also like the fact that he, you know, he says good and bad, you know, so it's like good to actually have these objects as a point of reference or a learning point, but it's also kind of a tragedy to like forcefully remove them from their intended context and they're sort of alienated from their purpose. So it, it's, it's very complex and I, I appreciated, I like that he does, um, he engages with the complexity 
you know, he acknowledges the complexity and the way he speaks about it really like exposes that complexity as well. Well, yeah. And like you say, this is a way in which people, a, a number of people have contact with Aboriginal cultures. And so, and there's, it's sort of like you're saying, it's also asking that question. I think he starts to propose it, which is if we do do away with that, how do we have exposure with Aboriginal cultures, you know, as a larger population? And what does that, what would that look like? I don't know. I like that he was sort of advocating against this sort of stasis. When we put things in museum, museum collections, they tend to be fixed as historical objects. Right. And so they sort of lose their potency as being kind of culturally relevant and of the moment. And I really like that he was messing around with that a little bit too. And also I think he was challenging sort of indigenous practices to continue to change almost. So like, you know, it's not a static cultural set of practices, but that it can be open to new material realities in some ways or forms of expression even, Mm -hmm. Um, which I, I found that quite empowering. And it's probably, you know, he's talked before about like sort of the burden of representation and the difficulty in like representing your whole people, you know, there's like a lot of responsibility and I'm sure there's some agency in sort of recognizing that change is not necessarily a bad thing and that, you know, what museums have done is sort of historicized a certain kind of practice that fixes it in the past and kind of removes it from its uh, relevance. So I think that was kind of empowering Mm -hmm. for me to hear that, kind of the way he's thinking about that. And I think in his practice too, it's like he works in text and digital imagery. So, I mean, he's kind of exploring these other ways of making that are uh, very much sincere and like thoughtful explorations of you know, or expressions of his culture, but are not materially bound by sort of a certain way of making that's associated with like Northwest Coast art. Oh, for sure. And to move away from that notion of it has to be traditional in order for it to be mm-hmm. Northwest Coast art. And it's, yeah, for sure, good to challenge those. That's a that's a Vancouver discussion you've probably heard a few times when you were there. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we, we also share that recent history of Vancouver, which is, it's interesting to have those conversations here that, like you say, start there. But yeah, <laughs> but yeah so I've, those were, at least for me, a couple highlights. Were there others for you, Troy, that sort of thoughts or themes that came across for you during this well I, i'm glad that we we took this on as a it's a fair, it was a fairly like big project and i thought the ambition of the the sort of scope was really kind of important to like stake out you know like we're committed to ideas and difficult ideas and we're committed to working with uh, people from international kind of partners partnerships and so I, it's kind of nice to see the sort of the first early kind of expressions of that kind of come to fruition. I think there there was a lot to take away from that and as well like a lot lots of like things to learn from in terms of just both organizationally and sort of curatorially for me personally, but also seeing that there is a space for um, a difficult critical kind of discourse that maybe we d- we haven't necessarily like brought in in the, at least in the in my history, my time at the at the gallery, so uh, one of the things we're doing actually is um, uh, right now they're working on a foundation to have a, an annual international lecture in recognition of the Mendel family. Okay. So I kind of thought of this as like sort of like a precursor or like you know the first sort of steps towards like establishing a more kind of regular rhythm of sort of bringing in 
thinkers from the outside to sort of share their perspective locally. And I think it, I think it's good, you know, like to have that. We obviously, you know, I don't think we can, um, we have to have sort of like a, probably a balanced program. Like, you know, we can't, it can't all be like sort of scholarly, uh, presentations. Some of those, some of the papers were admittedly like pretty dense. There's a lot on a Saturday, (laughs) (laughs) which is, yeah, when you're reading a paper, you know, I can go back, uh, and, and decipher if I need to, but you know, real time, it can be a, a little bit complicated. So, but I, I do think there's room for like that sort of like critical and theoretical discourse around art. And I think the a museum can be a, a place for research where we can invite that kind of scholarship and we can, we can share it and we can develop it ourselves as well. And it kind of fits within the sort of broader range of kind of activities that we, that we do as a, as a public institution, you know, the exhibitions of obviously also the programs that we do with the public, other ways, uh, opportunities for learning. And I think, you know, having some sort of scholarship or like kind of really rigorous criticism could be a good thing as well. So I think it was sort of like pointing in that direction, but also kind of acknowledging that, you know, there's certain challenges in like presenting this material. And, and so I think uh, it just, it'll be taking stock kind of of what happened this weekend and trying to build on the positive things that came out of it and maybe tweak some of the, some of the challenges that we had. Yeah. And I think that's a healthy approach to take is like, it's something at least to my knowledge, fairly new in Saskatoon in terms of the scale to which international speakers are coming here to speak about art and then learning from that to sort of say, how do you, how do you do it again? Or Mm -hmm. how would you do it again? Mm -hmm. I guess. (laughs) So Anyway, mm-hmm. but thank you, Troy, for bringing this together and bringing that to Saskatoon and for coming on the show today. So yeah, Thanks for inviting me, and I look forward to uh, more panel discussions, more radio show discussions, sure. more writing, <laughs> more sharing, more viewing. More talking about art. More talking about art. Yeah, thanks again. Thanks, Troy. You've been listening to Unframed. My guest this evening has been Troy Gronsdahl. Troy is an associate curator at the Ramey and helped to organize Super Community Live, the Climatic Unconscious, a series of lectures, video screenings, and presentations at the Roxy that took place this past Friday and Saturday. As Troy and I discussed, Super Community brought international scholars and artists to Saskatoon and with them brought conversations that were interesting, but also very challenging. Troy and I took the opportunity this evening to continue some of the conversations that were started at Super Community, and I'd like to encourage you to do the same. For those of you who were in attendance, and for those of you who are hearing some of these conversations for the first time this evening, I'm going to be posting a question through our social media asking for your responses to these conversations, and we encourage you to join in and continue the conversation in that way. Again, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Unframed Radio. Again, my name is Michael Peterson. You have been listening to Unframed, conversations about the arts on CFCR 90.5 FM and CFCR.ca. Thank you.